I can't point to any evidence where a debate won a candidate an election, but I can point to a lot of examples where candidates lost them in debates. I'm Eric Wilson, managing partner of Startup Caucus, an investment fund and incubator for Republican campaign technology. Welcome to the Business of Politics show. On this podcast, we bring you into conversation with the entrepreneurs who build best-in-class political businesses, the funders who provide the capital, and the operatives who put it all together to win campaigns. Our guest today is Brett O'Donnell. He is the go-to person on the Republican side of the aisle for all things debate, preparation, and planning. And he's also a sought-after advisor for strategic communications, both political and nonprofit and corporate. Brett advised President George W. Bush and Senator John McCain in their presidential debates and just about every other senator that you could name. And in our conversation today, we dig into the hidden world of campaign debates and what their future looks like. Brett, let's start by taking us behind the scenes of what leads up to a typical debate. I I know there's so much that goes into it that most voters will likely never notice. Yeah, absolutely. Um, You know, before any debate ever occurs, there's sometimes negotiations about what that debate will look like, who will be moderating that debate, and even who will be included in that debate. At the presidential level, which is probably the most interesting, for the general election presidential debates, there have been extensive negotiations over the type of carpeting on the floor, the temperature in the room, what rules will be used for follow-up questions, anything you can think of, coin tosses for who goes first, who goes second. And so there's a lot that goes on behind the scenes to actually prepare for that moment when candidates walk out on stage and are debating one another. A lot of it is geared toward doing what's best for your candidate. Debates are a lot about messaging opportunities but they're also what the public views as a chance to see the candidates head to head without the trappings of the political campaign, without the ads, without supposedly people writing speeches for them, whatever. And so audiences view these as sort of an unvarnished look at the candidates, a way for them to judge and size them up right next to the competition. And so uh, a lot of time goes into thinking about how to make sure your candidate is presented in favorable light. And as a matter of fact, lighting's even talked about. Uh, uh, My good friend, Rick Ahern, who has negotiated many, many uh, uh, debate uh, formats, uh, will always key in on what the lighting's going to be like. Is it individually keyed for the candidate or is it spray or, you know, uh, so, so folks think about almost every single detail from the moment the candidate arrives Uh, including how they will arrive, where they will go, what the green room is like, where the candidate will be held until the moment they walk off the stage and out of the building. And in fact, it's even negotiated who will walk off the stage first. Will bouses be allowed on the stage? All of those things are thought about in a good amount of detail before the first question is ever asked, before the lights go up for the debate. Are the candidates trying to get some sort of advantage here? What drives this negotiation? Is it to throw the other person off their game? I mean, how how does that factor? Sure. The answer is yes to all of those things. I mean, when we're negotiating debate formats and thinking about 
what we want in a debate for our candidate. We're also trying to maybe intimidate the other side a little bit or to lead them astray, to make them think we care about something, whether you know it's going first in the debate or going last in the debate. All of those sorts of things are things that we sometimes will use as a way to send a message to the other team, the other candidates. But most importantly, we're looking out for our candidate. You want to make sure that your candidate feels as comfortable as possible when they walk on that stage. And you want them to be as prepared as possible, but you also want them to be comfortable. And negotiating debate formats, negotiating sort of the parameters for the debate are very important because it's what will make your candidate feel most comfortable when they're out there performing. So the idea is there are no surprises other than what the moderator asks, right? As the, the sort of the, the goal. And, and even then, we don't want that to be a surprise. And that's why we do extensive debate prep to try and figure out what moderators might ask in a debate and what they might zero in on. And so we even think through that extensively. Yeah, well, I want to dig into the debate prep piece in just a minute. But before we go on, I want to think about some examples where you actually see some of this negotiating spill over into a debate. I think the Rick Scott versus Charlie Chris debate where there was a fan comes to mind. And then, gosh, in Indiana, you'll you'll correct me on this one. There was a, an interesting debate where someone just didn't come out for a few minutes because there was something. I mean, talk about, is that really like, you think that's a failure of debate negotiations when the voters notice? I do. Here's what happens. You negotiate debate formats, debate rules, all of those things. And the question becomes then, who will enforce these and what happens if another candidate fails to comply? So, for example, in the uh, example in Florida, where both teams had agreed that there would be no props of any kind, and it was specifically a ban on fans in the debates because one side knew that Charlie Chris liked having a fan. They didn't want him to have his fan. And so they had gotten the host to agree to put a rule in the debate format that no fans would be allowed. Charlie Crist violated that rule, and the host refused to enforce the rule. And so uh, Rick Scott refused to appear on stage to debate for the first few minutes of the debate. When, when that happens, I mean, it's, it's, it was really a failure of the host not to enforce the rules. But, you know, when that happens, no matter what, the show has to go on, and candidates have to go out on stage and debate because audiences don't care about whether or not the room temperature is too high or there's a fan or you weren't allowed to bring your particular pen or notepad onto the stage, they want to see you debate. Candidates who duck debates or don't show up for debates when they've said they're they're going to take a hit from the public. And so ultimately, at the end of the day, no matter what you agree to, you have to show up and debate, even if they don't enforce the rules. You just have to learn to play by them. Now, In Rick Scott's defense, there was an instance in his first gubernatorial debates where in a CNN debate, his opponent during the commercial break pulled out uh, a smartphone and was communicating on their smartphone. Uh, The the Scott campaign uh, pointed this out to CNN and CNN actually enforced the rule and called attention to the fact that 
his opponent had broken that rule. And so uh, that made a big difference because it became the news of the debate. And just as much as folks expect you to go debate, they also don't like rule breakers. And so if you know your your candidate is constantly going over time or breaks a rule in the debate and gets called out on it by the moderator, that's also a bad look. Brett, now let's turn to debate prep for a moment, which I know from being in these sessions with you on uh, previous campaigns can be starting from scratch or simply fine tuning. Walk us through how debate prep works. What are the things that you focus on and, and how do candidates respond to that? So first of all, debate prep looks a little bit different for every candidate because there are certain things that make each individual candidate most comfortable. I've had some candidates who don't like doing actual mock debates. They'd rather be seated, talk through the questions, work on the answers to the questions, talk about attacks, how to respond to the attacks, but they don't actually want to do a mock debate. There's other candidates who love doing mock debates. They want to make sure that they've been put in the exact scenario that they could face in uh, in the debate. And so debate prep will, will be tailored to what makes the candidate most comfortable. Remember, that's that's sort of the rule is to make sure that that your debate prep is geared toward the candidate you're working with and has them uh, uh, most prepared for, for a particular debate. But debate prep begins months before uh, a debate actually takes place for a good candidate. Now, uh, I've seen a lot of candidates who try to cram debate prep, and some can pull it off, but most cannot. Most good debate prep occurs a significant amount of time before the candidates ever walk out on stage. And it begins with making sure they know their own record, making sure they are up on all of the issues that could come up in a debate and making sure that they have the latest research on those issues so that they have a command of the facts in a debate. You know, for example, on a monthly basis, we get new inflation and economic data, job data. A candidate needs to be familiar with that. And so the job of a good debate preparation consultant is to make sure that they always have the latest and greatest information. But on top of that, the prep process then is to get them comfortable with what they are going to face in a debate. And so I always want candidates to walk out and say, wow, preparation, the prep process was a lot harder than the actual debate. I want them to see the worst things could be in debate prep rather than on the stage itself. That means being extra rigid in debate prep to make sure that they know exactly what the moderators could ask, what the other candidates could attack them on, and what the other candidates' message will be. So you always want to think about this through the lens of message, because when I approach debates, and I was a college debate coach for 21 years, those are college debates are debates. They, they function in a world where there is a technical judge who is looking at arguments, and they resolve the clash of arguments. But that doesn't happen in a political debate. In a political debate, it's an audience that knows issues, but probably doesn't know them as well as the candidate does, but is is judging them based on a bunch of criteria. It's not just who wins the technical arguments. It isn't just you presented 10 arguments, your opponent presented eight, and so you win. 
It's also how those arguments are couched. Are they couched in a way that says to an audience, hey, I understand you, I identify with you, I understand the problems that you're facing. So for instance, we think about the famous Clinton, Perot, Bush audience debate in Richmond, Virginia, was the very first town hall debate done by the Presidential Debate Commission. And in that debate, George H.W. Bush is asked, how does inflation affect him? And he can't really answer the question. And then Bill Clinton answers that question, and he gives his famous, I feel your pain answer, which immediately makes big news in the debate because the difference between the two answers is substantial. So audiences judge debates and how candidates are doing based on how connected they are to the audience. And finally, likability matters. You know, I can think of instance after instance. You think of the famous Reagan-Mondale exchange over age, where Mondale sort of insinuates that age may be a factor. And Reagan answers famously, I'm not going to make age a factor in this debate. I'm not going to make the youth and inexperience of my opponent a factor. And everybody laughs. Even Mondale laughs. He knows he's been had. And Reagan goes on to win the election, win the debate. And that answer becomes one of the more famous moments in that campaign. So all of those dimensions are at play. And so debates really aren't debates as much as they are about two things. They're about message, driving a message, and they're about moments. They're about big moments. And I've just described a couple for you where you are able to capture the imagination of the press and the American public and control the debate narrative. That's true at all levels. It's especially true, though, in debates that are lower than presidential level, because not many people watch Senate, gubernatorial, House, local city council. They they don't watch those debates, but they read about them and they see clips of them on TV. And the clips or the places they read about are those moments where one candidate exercises competitive advantage over another. They also read about the message because if your message is repeated throughout the debate, then the press will pick that up and they'll write about it. Well, they have no other choice but to write about it. That's That's the trick. That's correct. And they'll write about it. And so your message gets driven through the press coverage of the debate. And so Debates really have to be about message and they have to be about moments. And when you focus on those two things, you can come up with a pretty good debate performance to advance the narrative of your campaign. As I say, and I tell candidates all the time, you can't win an election in a debate, but you can lose one. For example, in this last cycle, ask Terry McAuliffe. Terry McAuliffe made a giant mistake in a debate by telling voters in Virginia that he didn't think parents should be in the classroom involved in what their kids were learning. That was a huge mistake. And the Youngkin campaign immediately seized on that. They made an ad out of that moment. And it became a turning point, I believe, in the the Youngkin-McAuliffe race. People are sometimes weirded out by how calm I am on debates, around debates. And I just say, look, I've already lived through the worst debate experience ever, which you'll recall a New Hampshire primary debate in 2016 did not go very well for my candidate. And so I've seen exactly what you're talking about. Of It can lose you a campaign, but it can also put some, some wind in your sails, to be fair to debates. Yep. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and especially at the presidential level, where 
you know, primarily right before elections. I mean, most presidential campaigns are fought through free media, through earned media, through press coverage of interviews and through debates, because there's so many debates in the primary cycle with presidential candidates and and a lot of people watch them. And so those moments become memorable. I mean, those are the moments in which Ted Cruz was branded lying Ted and Marco Rubio was branded little Marco and other things happened in that cycle where debates really mattered for the candidates. I would argue that President Trump's performance in the first debate against Joe Biden affected the race. So they absolutely can have an impact on the race. I just see them as a part of the larger campaign narrative. I can't point to any evidence where a debate won a candidate an election, but I can point to a lot of examples where candidates lost them in debates. So Brett, I want to dig into something here, which I think is applicable outside of debates to other aspects of campaigns, but I think is most acute in the work that you do, which is In order to be effective at debate prep, you sometimes have to challenge a candidate, which is not something that they are used to having happen. And so how do you execute your professional role while also maintaining a candidate's trust and still being able to be a part of the team? The fast answer to that is I let someone else do the needling. Normally, we'll get someone to play the role of the opponent in debate prep so that they don't associate me negatively with debate prep. But really, the trust of the candidate is one long before you ever do a mock debate or actually start serious debate prep. When you start preparing them on issues and and you gain their trust on preparing them to understand how to talk about issues, because again, this is really about message. So when you gain their trust on how to talk about issues, Then when you enter the process of debate prep, it's very seamless. They start to understand how those things fit together and why debates are really just an extension of what you've been doing to prepare them across a variety of communication platforms, whether it's their stump speech or for a media interview or to do a town hall, anything that they might have to do where they have to address an audience is really about messaging And it's understanding how to message on specific issues in a way that connects with audiences and convinces those audiences that you're the best candidate to lead on those issues. You're listening to the Business of Politics show. I'm speaking with Brett O'Donnell about all things related to campaign debates. And Brett, I think it's fair to say that you've witnessed a lot of change over the years in how debates work, both in terms of the process and their impact. And, you know, for most of my career, the real measure of a debate has been, you know, what's going on on Twitter as opposed to what's going on in the room. And, and that does shape the coverage to some extent. What are some of the other ways that technology has shifted the role of debates over your career? Sure. Well, first of all, the whole notion of, you know, real-time feedback in debates has obviously shifted. You know, I've watched debates go from really sort of static, here's an event, the media has to go write stories about it, has to get their story ready for the evening news, whatever. So there's great lag time to real-time coverage where, you know, for example, when Rick Perry had his oops moment in Oakland, Michigan, in real time, there was a Twitter feed underneath the CNBC screen where you could read what people were saying about that moment in the middle of the debate immediately after it happened. And it became devastating to Governor Perry and the campaign. 
So the notion of social media and and sort of real-time feedback has changed the dynamic tremendously. Another thing that's changed is in the good old days, so to speak, of debates, candidates would debate and then there'd be a spin room where their advisors would go out, sometimes even the candidate would go out and try to convince the media that they won. Nowadays, there's real-time polling, there's the immediacy of feedback, and so it's much harder for a spin room to make as significant a difference in shaping the narrative of a debate as you have to in dynamics of social media, whether it's Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, all of those things. So sort of immediacy of even controlling the narrative coming out of a debate can get away from a a campaign much, much, much faster. And then technology has changed the way we conduct debates. You know, you have audiences that can ask questions electronically in real time, which can cause follow-ups. It, you know, causes all sorts of of sort of live TV moments. Think of even presidential debates in the last cycles where audiences were in not just audiences present in the room, but audiences outside the room were invited to participate in the debates. And so that whole notion of participation and the fact that audiences have greater access to viewing the debate and even participating in the debates have changed the way we have to coach them because it's not just going to be a moderator asking predetermined questions anymore. The ground of debates will shift dramatically as real-time feedback comes in. So I think that has very much shifted the notion of debates. And then in this last, the last couple of cycles, we've had the pandemic. And so debates have shifted to Zoom. And a Zoom debate is an entirely different atmosphere. And for example, if the technology doesn't work, or if you have a bad backdrop or something in your backdrop that's distracting from the message or from the candidate themselves, or a whole host of things that can happen across the Zoom platform, and then you lose the sense of sort of being in the room together. And I think it causes candidates to sort of let down their guard and say things they probably wouldn't say if they were standing in the same room with the other candidate. And so there's there's been that dynamic um, as well. That's really fascinating. Brett, I want to look into the future. Uh, and certainly, you know, one of the things that's happening as we record this is there's discussion about what engagement will the Republican nominee have with the Commission on Presidential Debates. Broadly speaking, what role will debates play, if any? I, I think I know where you come down on that, but I want to leave that option open uh, in 2024 and beyond as we change the way we wage campaigns. Well, first of all, debate is the cornerstone of our democracy. It is what drives the legislative branch. It is what drives our democracy. So I hope we never, ever, ever lose a sense that debate is not important, that political debates are not important. And it's, as a matter of fact, they're more important now than they've ever been. Because I worry that in the hegemony of power, when one side gets power over the other by getting a majority in both the Senate and the House and the presidency, that they exercise that power to minimize debate and to demand a monolith of opinion. And so I hope that both sides would value debate, but the debates have to be fair. The best way, I think, for there to be fair debates is to let the candidates and their campaigns negotiate out the rules for the debate rather than having an independent third party, because ultimately one side or the other is going to feel like 
the third party is not apolitical. And it's very hard to find, you know, a bipartisan group who can come to consensus on what the rules should be that everybody's going to be happy with. So I really think even if there's going to be a presidential debate commission, I do believe they serve a function. I think campaigns and the parties should be able to speak into that process with a greater degree of control over who the moderators are, what the rules look like, so that both sides feel like they got a fair shake coming out of the debates. You know, And so I think that's terribly important. I think that it's important for our democracy. I hope that in the future, there will be debates. There certainly needs to be. There are those moments where you know, the candidates can't take notes. They have to go up there. They have to operate from their preparation. They have to operate in that atmosphere of being unvarnished. I think it's very, very important part of the public's view of what candidates look like are and how they would lead the country as president or whatever office might be sought. So so I think debates are terribly important. And I hope that we can always find a way to come to an agreement where all sides, whoever's participating, all parties feel like they got a fair shake so that their candidates will participate in those debates. Now, before we wrap up, I want to ask you, uh, what's a challenge or headache that you face in your work related to debates that a startup founder could tackle with a new product or company? Wow, that's a very, very, very good question. I mean, there's lots of things that could help what we do. I mean, we deal with enormous amounts of information because we're trying to constantly track what candidates are saying about issues to make sure we understand how they're going to talk about them inside the debates. And so, you know, if there was uh, a way to gather that information real time and sort it into a database so that we had it readily accessible, that would be tremendously helpful to, uh, to what we do. Yeah. And Brett, I don't think it's going to be too long before we're having debates in the metaverse where you can actually just recreate your opponent from scratch with artificial intelligence. But there will still always be a need for preparation. Yep, absolutely. My thanks to Brett for joining us today and sharing his insights and experience. You can learn more about him at his website, which is linked in the show notes. And if you enjoyed our conversation today, I would ask that you share it with a friend or colleague and be sure to subscribe to the Business of Politics show wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode. We'll see you next time.